0: Hello and welcome. Uh, My name is James Barras and I'm a senior teacher at Spirit Rock Meditation Center and I'd like to welcome you to today's teleconference. I'm happy to be joined by my colleagues Anna Douglas and Frank Ostasevsky. Anna is one of the founding teachers of Spirit Rock Meditation Center and has taught insight meditation for 30 years. And in the last few years, she's focused much of her teaching on aging as a spiritual opportunity. Frank Ostaseski co-founded the Zen Hospice Project, the first Buddhist hospice in America. And in 2004, he created the Meta Institute to provide trainings on mindful and compassionate care of the dying. Uh, I'll say a few words about me. I've been teaching insight meditation since 1978. I also created and teach a popular uh, online course called Awakening Joy that's based on a book that I wrote of the same name. Let me tell you uh, just a bit about the organizations uh, sponsoring this call. Spirit Rock is one of America's uh, most well-known spiritual communities. provides silent meditation retreats, classes, trainings, Dharma study opportunities for new and experienced students from diverse backgrounds. Uh, META Institute has earned a national reputation as a provider of innovative trainings for those who are dedicated to transforming care of the dying. They offer the well-known end-of-life practitioner program and a broad range of professional trainings that address the psychological and spiritual dimensions of dying also want to um, mention Maestro Conference, the platform that we're using. Uh, Maestro's been extremely generous in going the extra mile to make this call available to everyone who wants to participate. I want to thank Maestro and uh, Joshua Edwards, who's supporting us on this call. I uh, want to say a bit about the program that we're all involved in, Frank, Anna, and, and some other teachers, um, and then we'll get started with a discussion. Uh, Spirit Rock and Metta Institute are collaborating in creating a new training program uh, titled The Heavenly Messengers, Awakening Through Illness, Aging, and Death. Uh, This two-year program will involve five residential retreats, study of classic Buddhist teachings, contemporary approaches to caregiving, home study, mentoring by teachers, and expressing these teachings through service in one's own community. Uh, The name of the program is drawn from the legend of the Buddha's early life. Prince Siddhartha, the Buddha-to-be, lived in a very protected world, unaware of the most elementary facts of human life. Curiosity led him out beyond the palace walls where he encountered four heavenly messengers that were said to be sent from the heaven realms to wake him up from his isolation and change his destiny. The first three were a sick person, an old person, and a corpse. The fourth was a wandering ascetic seeking true happiness who motivated the young Siddhartha to seek a path through suffering to freedom. The three of us are members of a core faculty for this training and will be joined by Sharda Rogel, Bob Stahl, and Angie Stevens. We'll also have a number of remarkable guest teachers, including Jack Cornfield, Sylvia Borstein, Ram Das, Stephen and Andrea Levine, Joan Halifax, Norman Fisher, Rachel Naomi Remen, Kathleen Dowling-Singh, Gil Fransdale, Guy Armstrong, and many, many more. So uh, it's going to be quite a program, and I uh, hope you, uh, you check it out. Uh, so i 'll just stop here and uh, let Frank share a little bit about uh, about the call
1: so good morning everyone and um, today 's teleconference is meant first of all to both educate but also to stimulate discussion uh, related to the issues of illness, aging, and dying, and compassionate service and uh, We want to really explore in this call how insight meditation and contemplative practices can help us really to skillfully address these very human experiences that all of us face in our everyday lives, and how they can possibly be also a a gateway uh, on the road to awakening. So uh, before we get started, I wanna just briefly uh, outline a few logistics for today's call. It functions a bit like a radio show. The three of us will each speak for approximately eight to 10 minutes, and then we'll engage all of you in uh, discussion and questions and comments. Um, To ask a question or to make a comment, you simply raise your hand as if we were all sitting in the room together. And you do that by pushing the number one on your telephone keypad. And when you do that, your name will automatically appear on our conference control board. And as moderator, I'll call your name and invite you to speak. Now, we're going to try to get to as many questions as possible, uh, as much as time will allow anyway. So out of respect for others, please keep your questions and your comments very brief. Uh, during the teleconference, everyone's microphones will be muted except for the individual speaker and the questioners. Um, when we finish with questions and comments, we'll make a few final announcements and then there'll be a closing meditation and we'll close the call about um, in about 1.15 Pacific Coast time. If at any time during the conference you have a technical question, something about your inability to hear or connect with the call, press number five on your telephone keypad, and one of our technicians will try and respond. So, Anna, how about if you uh, help us uh, settle in a little bit before we start our
2: call? Yes, lovely. Hello, everyone. This is Anna. So, just as we do when we are in a retreat hall together, I'd like to invite you into an upright but comfortable posture. Wherever you are, you might want to find a location where you can be uninterrupted, closing the door or going to another room, finding a comfortable chair to sit in and finding a comfortable way to be present for the next hour. So settling yourself, feeling the contact of your buttocks with the chair or whatever you're sitting on. In doing that, feeling the the movement of energy in your body, feeling the contact with the earth, feeling supported, and noticing the movement of your breath in your belly, in your heart, or at your nostrils. You might even want to put a hand on your belly or your heart. Allow the, these these centers of awareness to be present during the call, so that what is being received is not just being received by your thinking mind, but also by your feelings, by your sense by your sensing. Now take a deep breath and exhale fully, just letting go of all the activity of the day, feeling your presence just here, just now, open. And receptive to what is being said. James.
1: So James, why don't we uh, begin with you? Maybe you could um, start us off and... um We'll see where that takes us.
0: Okay. Well, um it's a real delight to uh to be on this call and also with um with Anna and Frank uh and uh explore this uh these topics of illness aging and, and death. Uh and I'm gonna be saying a bit about uh illness, particularly because uh Frank is uh is, is so well-versed in end-of-care and uh, dying, and Anna's done so much work with, uh, with aging. Uh, so that leaves illness to me. Uh, and I, I want to I say that um, first, it's something that I personally haven't had to face chronic illness, although I've, we've, as everybody, have had my own share of illnesses and and challenges, Um, but uh, I support others who are going through either acute or chronic uh, challenges around health, and um, I'm involved in this Heavenly Messenger program I wanted to get involved in it, uh, not because I have all the answers, but because uh, I want to learn as much as I can about how to use these facts of life as practice and to support others, too. So I'm just speaking for uh, probably many of us who are um, wanting to understand how to use this, as the Buddha suggested, as a vehicle for awakening. The Buddha talked about... um, Reflecting on this regularly, as perhaps some of you are familiar with uh, what are known as the five reflections or sometimes called the five remembrances, uh, that he said every day or as regularly as possible to reflect on the fact that we, uh, this body is not beyond illness, it's not beyond aging, it is not beyond death. We will all face those three uh, circumstances and everything near and dear to us, we will be separated from, and that the one possession we have is our karma, is our our actions that create uh, our uh, not only our life but our uh, relationship to our experience. So, um, I thought first I'd I'd mention a few things of uh, a few. Quotes of the Buddha to put this in perspective, um, where he says, I can find it here mm. illness. <clears throat> First, uh, a sick person, five qualities that, um, that make, a, make somebody who is sick easy to tend to. One, they do what is amenable to their cure. They know the proper amount and things amenable to the cure. That person takes their medicine, tells their symptoms accurately, uh, saying they're worse when they're worse, improving when they're improving, or remaining the same when they're remaining the same. And they're the type who can endure bodily feelings um, without letting, getting their mind too, uh, too disturbed. Um, and those who care for the sick, he talked about five qualities that support uh, caring for the sick that makes someone a good caregiver, competent at mixing medicine, knows what is helpful or not to the patient's cure, uh, takes away things that are, that are not amenable to the cure, motivated by thoughts of goodwill. That they come from a place of caring and, and love, and that they do not get uh, disgusted at all the uh, the natural aspects of what a human uh, a human body can uh, can endure and can uh, express uh, excrement and vomit and things like that. And the Buddha also talked about not getting um, so caught up in the pain that one 's mind is disturbed this is this is where pain becomes a real practice. Of course, this is easier said than done, but he talks about not adding on top of our own challenges um, physical challenges our mental um, despair and, uh, and self-pity, and, but to think that this is part of life and somehow to come to terms with with that on a mental level that we don't have to add on a second arrow, as he called it, on top of the first arrow of pain. Um, in working with people uh, who are sick, uh, I've been so inspired by the capacity of... of uh, Dharma students and and uh, and friends that I know to open up not only to uh, to not complain but to but to have a deep kind of understanding that can come from their own suffering and see the universality of it one uh, one woman who I've been in touch with for the last few years, somebody who's really inspired me tremendously. Uh, a young woman who, uh, she said, it's it's fine to use her name. Uh, her name is Steph, and she's a woman who's now 26 in Australia who wrote to me first. Uh, she had read uh, the book Awakening Joy and reached out that she had never reached out before. But she's been basically um, uh, housebound for much of her last uh, few years with uh, a kind of uh, condition uh, called POTS. And at first she was so uh, mm, desperate for some answers. And we've gotten to know each other quite well over the last few years, and it's been amazing to see her transformation. And uh, when she wrote to me, some of the things that I I mentioned to her um, kind of helped maybe put it into a, a different perspective Where I said, I could only imagine the frustration and discouragement I will read a little that you're experiencing. It seems to me that if this is the way things are, until something in your situation changes, you have two choices. Either wish they were different and suffer more, or decide to use this situation as difficult as as it is to keep growing in the direction of greater wisdom, understanding, and compassion. The most important decision you can make well she made that decision and wrote me back in our uh, email exchanges and we're in touch quite regularly now she says um, life hasn't changed but my and my environment is still much the same the people I see are much the same the most important thing that has changed is my mind. She put five exclamation marks after that. I see things now with much clarity and with an open heart. I feel lighter by changing my perspective. No matter what the circumstances may be, I can hold things in a in a wholesome way. I've made the choice to be a happier and more joyful person. I still have a way to go yet until I am, for lack of a better word, free, free. But the journey now is one I will remember with fonder memories. And she's gone on to do um, wonderful things, counseling and um, uh, helping others, and be an instrument of support and healing. She's getting married this June, and I'll be there via Skype with her with her wedding. And it's been really inspiring to see the possibilities of choosing a perspective that holds your condition. Uh, even when the condition is challenging. So um, I'll just stop here and uh, uh, and maybe we'll, there'll be some questions uh, afterwards that uh, we can respond to.
1: Thank you, James, thank you. Um, yeah, we'll come back to questions in a few minutes, but I'd like to give every, each person a chance to speak first. So Anna, let's hear from you, thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you, James. I'm reflecting on the fact that each of these messengers has its own unique challenges and tasks. You could say, I, I would like to suggest that that aging is perhaps a more kind messenger than illness or death. Why? Because, uh, one, it's not a medical emergency that people get older. And, It's a part of nature. It's part of a natural evolution. And it also is kind because it happens so very slowly, imperceptibly even. You can imagine if you went to bed at the age of 25, and somehow the next morning you woke up and you were 65. You would be in complete shock. But because it happens so slowly, we have time to adjust. We don't even notice. It only comes, it seems, in flashes of recognition. Maybe you see it first in others. Maybe you see an old friend you haven't seen in a really long time, and, my gosh, they look so old. What happened to John? What you know Is that happening to me? Or you see the face in the mirror that looks, somehow like your mother or your father. Wow, how did that happen? Or perhaps, you know, the imperceptible sagging of the muscles, the appearance of the wrinkles. You find yourself squinting at labels or the way young people call you ma'am or sir. All of these are, you know, appearances of the messenger of aging. But the realization of the fact of it takes a while to sink in. It's a kind of denial. I see it in myself. I see it in my friends. It's like we're all in some kind of trance, believing that this will never end, that we'll just be perpetually healthy and well, and our life will continue as it has. So most people go in and out of denial about the fact of aging. There's a New Yorker cartoon I like of a couple going to the movies. The wife is buying the tickets and saying to the cashier, one senior and one refusing to admit he's a senior. Part of this denial is the fact that inside of us, inside of us, we may not feel older at all. We go through many hours of the day when we feel just as we have always until a moment when the body shows its frailty or its lack of energy. There is a paradoxical teaching that comes with aging, and it is just this. Clearly, my body is aging. But when I close my eyes and become aware of my breath or the deep calmness of being, where is aging? can't find it. The Buddha described nirvana as the unborn, the undying, the unailing, or we might say the unaging. What are those words pointing to? They are actually pointing to the fourth messenger, the good news in all of this, which is the possibility of awakening out of conditions to the unconditioned, to that which is untouched by birth or death. This will surely be part of our exploration in the Heavenly Messengers program. As one of the Heavenly Messengers, the aging of the body is seen as an aspect of dukkha one of the unwanted experiences of human life. But this does not necessarily condemn us to being a victim of our body's frailty. As with all experiences which arise and are met with mindfulness, the all-important question is to ask, what is my relationship to this experience? As unwanted as aging may seem, how we relate to the fact of it is the place of practice and liberation, just as in the story that James just shared with us about this young woman whose relationship to the fact of her illness has changed her so radically. That is why with aging it is crucial to become aware of our attitude towards the fact of it. I have mentioned that denial is often present. Other common attitudes that arise are fear. Fear of aging is quite common. The uncontrollable changes in the body often provoke fear. Another common response to aging is confusion. Who am I now? I'm teaching a day long in June called Who Am I Now? which explores this shift in identity which uh, aging brings. Am I now that I am no longer defined by my job or by having young children to care for? There is loss involved in aging, loss of our body's vigor, loss of our standing in the world, loss of our sexual prow- prowess, loss of who we took ourselves to be. And these losses may provoke all kinds of feelings, feelings of shame or deficiency, of not being valued anymore, not being loved. Or aging may provoke anger, feeling of life's betrayal. I had a student once who told me about her father when he was dying and really angry about it. He had been a very successful businessman, a CEO, used to being in charge of everything. While he was dying, he kept asking his daughter, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? Now, of course, there are also some people who have a more accepting attitude towards their aging, even a feeling of of contentment or relief that they're Responsibilities in life are coming to an end. And then there are those whose life work has been their their great passion. Uh, and with those people, they may feel a deepening sense of the gifts they have offered and of the connection to something that matters to them. I think of people like Joanna Macy, still going strong in her 80s, or Marion Woodman, the Jungian analyst. Or Ramdas, or the many esteemed Dharma teachers now in their 60s or 70s who will hopefully still be sharing their life's practice when they are in their 80s and 90s. There's a story of Pablo Casals, who at the age of 93 was still practicing on his cello for three hours a day. When asked why, he said because he was noticing some small improvements. So there are these beautiful examples of what is possible in later life. So these are some of the attitudes that we may find in ourselves, attitudes of denial, of fear, of confusion, of anger, of shame, of grief. And of course, in addition to these personal attitudes, the culture has attitudes about old people. We live in a youth-obsessed culture. We all know this. I remember the slogan of the 1960s, don't trust anyone over 30. How does that sound to our ears now? So an antidote to these afflictive states is the uh, offering that the messengers brings to us that that remind people of the rich spiritual opportunity that meeting these experiences can bring to us. James and I are teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock in May called Aging as Spiritual Opportunity for those 55 and over. Right now in the world, there is a fortunate confluence of opportunities for the current generation of baby boomers. Many of them will find an extra 10 or more years of life, and many of them will wish to see to use those extra years in a more meaningful fashion than golf and a backyard hammock. The old ideas of retirement are changing. Just a few days ago, NPR carried a story called, We Should Retire the Word Retire. They suggested a better word might be re-engagement. I like to think that uh, in India there is an archetype that supports the idea that the final stage of life is for one's spiritual evolution. At age 60, one is set free from household responsibilities and allowed to leave home or go forth in the same way that the monks following the Buddha left the householder life. What is beginning to appear here in the West in various Buddhist practice centers is an acknowledgement of the end of life as being a vital time for spiritual practice. The recognition of aging in ourselves comes an increased appreciation for the Dharma teachings on impermanence, on emptiness, on the suffering of trying to make things different. As a dharma teacher, I, I've been very inspired by working with people 55 and over, and I feel deeply committed to creating opportunities and support for people to deepen their practice right up to the moment of death. And one of my questions is, how do meditation centers make end-of-life practice a vital part of their curriculum? i like to say aging is where the personal and the universal meet. We begin to see that what we take so personally as the changes in our body, our cognitive function, our energy, are universal experiences. What we have taken to be me and mine is revealed not to be ours at all. Our bodies have been on loan. What a rich teaching this is. There are many Dharma teachings that if we took on as our main practice, the Four Noble Truths, the Seven Factors of Awakening, the Brahma Viharas, any one of these practices done with persistence and death, you would be well prepared for the inevitable deterioration of the body. You would be well prepared for the moment of death. Seeing the spiritual opportunity of aging and the relevance of the Buddhist teachings to your questions and to your fears is very much a part of what we will be exploring in the Heavenly Messenger program. So now I'd like to close with a poem by uh, William Martin from his lovely book called The Sages' Tao Te Ching. It is a, a brief little poem called like coming home. Learning to see things from a different angle requires great courage. Old voices within will seek to kindle the fire of fear. You're not going to have enough. You must hold on. You're going to be alone. You're going to die. The of the Tao says this will always have enough. We can let go. We are never alone. And dying will be like coming home. Thank you. I look forward oh, to boy. seeing many of you at the at the Heavenly Messengers program.
1: Oh boy! Thanks, Anna, and thanks again to James. Um, Golly, it's a lot to take in all of this, isn't it? Um, Before I speak, I just want to remind you that we're gonna, after I finish talking, we'll open it up for questions and comments. And if you'd like to have a question or a comment that you'd like to ask either about things that we're saying here or about the program in general, just press the number one on your telephone keypad and that will um, cause your name to light up on our board and we'll be able to call on you. Have a question, press the number one on your telephone keypad. Well, I, I've been very struck by uh, both James and Anna's comments, and um, I want to speak a little bit to the, the third messenger, uh, death, and um, talk a little bit about how it shows up in our everyday lives. You know, over the last 30 years or so, um, I've had the very good fortune to be with. Hundreds of people, actually, as they died at this incredibly vulnerable moment. And i have been with thousands of family and professional caregivers who have been accompanying those people. And one thing that's clear is that whether you're the person in the bed or the person making the bed, dying presents us with this extraordinary opportunity to wake up. But it doesn't just happen by itself. It requires a certain awareness. It requires a willingness to actually turn toward the experience. Now, the most important message that I wanna share with you in just a few, in these few minutes, is that dying is actually conducive, supportive of awakening. So I wanna speak a little bit about the transformative potential that's inherent um, uh, in this process both for the dying person and for his or her caregivers. So we start by just remembering that just about every spiritual tradition, at least the ones I can think of, all in one way or another remind us to keep death as our advisor. And that's in part because the reflection on death, just considering it, can lend a certain power and grace and fullness really to every moment, every action of our life. Because when we keep death really close at hand, you know, at our fingertips, what happens is that we become less compulsive about gratification. And maybe, you know, we don't take ourselves, our ideas so seriously. And we let go a little bit more easily. And in my experience, it's paradoxical, but it's true that the reflection on dying It causes us to be kinder to one another. And partly that's because when we come in contact with just how precarious this life actually is, we also come to appreciate just how precious it is. It shows us what's really important. And then we don't want to waste a minute. Then we want to jump into our life with both feet. We want to enter our life really fully Now, I'm not romantic about dying. It's the hardest work that we'll ever do. But I do want to say here at the beginning that the practice of meditation and the process of dying have an awful lot in common. There's this turning inward. um, There's a deepening sense of presence. There's more silence. There's the experience of images and visions and archetypes we're transformed both in dying and in meditation. But as my friend Kathleen Darling Singh says, in meditation, we choose to be transformed. In dying, we're chosen. So like meditation, dying can be this time of great aliveness for us. Um, It can be a space, a process of surrender and transformation. It can at its heart be a sacred act. Now, again, I'm not romantic about this, but what I want to remind us of is that in meditation practice, um, it helps us to see, we could say, the sacred uh, in things. And, And to see the sacred isn't so much about seeing new things. It's about seeing things in a new way. It's what Anna was talking about when she talked about shifting our relationship. So the sacred It's not something separate or different from all the other things, but rather it's hidden in all things. And dying is an opportunity to uncover what's hidden. So to see the sacred is to gradually remove or see through all the obscurations, the perceptions, the views, that block our capacity to recognize the truth that was always present. Um... I often think of dying, particularly dying that comes through long-term illness, as a kind of stripping away process. You know, all the ways I've defined myself, I'm a father, I'm a teacher, I'm a Buddhist. You know, all of these identities are either given up or they're taken away. And so this process exposes something much more fundamental and essential about our nature. Dying is so much more than a medical event, and we have to stop treating it like it was just that. In, in my experience, it's much more about relationships. It's about our relationship to ourself, to those we love, to spirit, to God, to Buddha nature, however we might name the, the, whatever our image is of ultimate kindness. And so being a companion to somebody who's dying is to a large extent a matter of addressing or supporting these relationships. Um, in, there are three capacities that I want to just mention that are really helpful that we can bring to the process of being a companion of someone who's dying. And the first of those is that is mastery. You know, when I'm dying, I want somebody who knows what they're doing. I want somebody at my bedside who can help manage my pain and um, address my symptoms. But that mastery won't be enough. It just won't be enough. So I want also somebody at my bedside who can help me discover meaning, what the value and purpose of this life has been, even of this suffering that I might find myself in the midst of. So I need somebody who's comfortable in the territory of meaning. But then there's some juncture at which you know, meaning just falls away. And then we enter a whole new territory, and that's the territory of mystery. This is the territory of unanswerable questions, where we help someone to discover the truth, even if it's one that we don't agree with. You know? um, all of us, at some point, will be called upon to be a companion to someone who's dying. You know, it might arise for us um, um, when an individual or friend um, encourages us to become a volunteer, or maybe it's part of our professional work. But more commonly, I think it arrives when a family member shares their terminal diagnosis. Um, Perhaps we feel like it's a conscious choice that we go to become a companion to someone who's dying, but maybe you feel like you have no choice at all. Here's what I want to leave you with about being a companion. The eyes of a dying patient (coughs) are the clearest mirrors that I've ever looked into. And in their gaze, there is no place to hide. And over the years... I've watched, you know, as the habits of my life have been reflected in those eyes. My illusions of separation, the deepest clingings and aversions of my life, but also something else, something I, I like to call an undying love. I discover that there also. Look, caring for those who are dying is difficult work. It will challenge your most basic beliefs. It'll ask you to push through unbelievable fatigue and cause you to, Im- to face unimaginable doubt. And restlessness will rule often, you know? And you'll question your ability and your motivation and your own clingings and aversions and patterns. They present themselves like nothing else, you know? And helplessness and insecurity They'll be your common companions. And above all, maybe, you'll face your own loss and you'll confront the fragility of your own life and it'll break your heart wide open. And maybe it's there, you know, in the open heart that we discover what really helps. To be a companion to someone who's dying is a continuous journey. We have no idea how it will turn out. We're always going to be entering new territory. And it will ask of us a certain courage and flexibility. That in, you know, in one moment you'll, you'll say something that feels absolutely right, and the same thing is absolutely wrong in the next moment. You know? And all we can do is try and find a balance. It's a mystery that we really need to live, live into. And it asks us to open and risk and to forgive constantly. And so it's because of this that it's such, it has such opportunity for us, as a caregiver, to awaken, to awaken our mindfulness and our compassionate hearts, you know. And for the person that's dying, oh, the opportunity is extraordinary as to what's possible for someone as their sense of identity, their sense of separate self, strips away or falls away in this process and they can come into contact with something much more essential in their nature. So there's more things I could share with you, but I kind of want to stop there. And and actually, I really want to get to your questions and comments. Um, So, yeah, let me just remind you that if you want to ask a question, if you want to, you know, uh, make a comment, to please do it briefly. Press number one on your phone and um, we'll try and call on as many people as we possibly can. So um, I'm going to ask Joshua, our technician, if he would um, please call on Mary Hosteller. Mary, are you there? And maybe you have a question for I'm here. Uh,
3: The thing I think that I
2: um, doubt about myself is my ability to deal with the the dying process sometimes being so up close and personal and having to face my own
3: fears and doubts and whether how I will be from my own death.
2: I don't know if you can speak to that. (laughs) Okay, well, you know, what
1: I'm going to do here is just try and facilitate a little bit between Anna and James and myself and, you know, Uh uh, we might it might be that one of us have an, a response or several of us might have a response. We'll see. So, you know, Mary, my first comment to you, and we'll see if James and Charlotte want to add to this. My first comment to you is just um, let this reflection be a kindness to yourself. In other words, it's not some place that you have to get to, some acceptance of your dying process, but rather let it be a kind reflection that you include at various points in your day, for example, at the end of your exhale, or when you're saying goodbye to a friend, you know, just begin to notice the endings of things, and you can see how that actually becomes a kind of a way of getting familiar with constant change and, and the deaths that happen moment to moment in our lives.
0: I I, I think that's uh, it, it's something that we all have to uh, have to face for ourselves the the mystery of uh, of of life, and uh, not to expect that there's any answers, but just to hold our our questioning and our fears and our uh, our our doubts or confusions with a lot of compassion, uh, because you're not alone. You have the company of everybody who's ever who's ever come into this world.
1: Hmm. Beautiful, James. Okay, let's go to another question or comment, and then we'll see where um, that takes us. Go to. Uh Lavona Marie Schlitt, I think, is her last name.
3: That's pretty close, Frank. Okay, Lavona, sorry. Oh, thanks very much. Thanks. Uh, Frank, I have been working with hospice here in Minnesota for a while, and the one big mystery to me that keeps coming
2: up is um, the process of Alzheimer's and both being with people in that process and the questions that come up for me of uh, uh, where is someone? Uh, uh, if Alzheimer's comes to me, will will I be able to, uh, will my practice still be there? What
3: happens?
1: Yeah. Well, it's a good question. Um, you know, I, I think that uh, I'll jump in this. I think maybe Anna might have something else to add to this, but I, I just want to begin by saying, It's confusing for us to be around people who are confused. You know, we can't rely on our normal reference points with them, it's kind of disruptive to us. And so we we expect people to make sense, you know. Um, We have to remember that Alzheimer's is a disease of the brain, and we're so identified with our thinking process that we imagine that when this disease enters, we're losing um, who we are. You know, if our spleens were being affected, we, weren't be, we wouldn't be so upset, or maybe not in the same way, as we are when our brains are being affected. Um, I, I always feel like it's important to recognize that there's a whole human being there, even if they're in a distressing disguise. That um, we can continue to relate to people who have Alzheimer's even if they're not able to cognitively respond to us. Uh, we have, of course, our capacity for touching them in lots of other ways, through the way we modulate our voice, the way we make physical contact with them. So it's really important to me that we remind ourselves that there's a whole human being there. That's the most important message I want to send. Yeah, totally. Um, You know, when some of us were a long time ago with with His Holiness, the Dalai Lama, we asked him about this question as it related to... um, morphine and uh, the introduction of drugs, and he really helped people to see that there were dimensions of mind, you know, dimensions of mind, layers of mind, we could think of it as, that are not affected by um, medication or by, you know, even uh, disease uh, uh, that impairs our cognitive capacity. It's not all that we are,
2: our cognitive capacity.
1: So, Anna, is there anything you want to add to this? I know that this is an that's issue. Confusion an issue for
2: people to age. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I I I don't have a lot of personal experience with Alzheimer's. I do know that uh, some uh, elderly practitioners that I have met who ha- are perhaps having Alzheimer's still have other qualities of heart and mind that can be quite beautiful qualities of. Uh, Kindness or peace or calmness or they're they're not so disturbed by the fact of Alzheimer's. So just to uh, um, agree with what Frank was saying about these other dimensions of our being, that I feel if we have been a, a, a strong Dharma practitioner for some years, that the depth of those qualities will not abandon us. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, and, uh, you know, um, I want to orient you and others to a place called Joseph's House, which is an AIDS hospice in Washington, D.C., and the founder of that place, David Hilfiger, is an old friend, and he's now blogging about his experience of Alzheimer's. He's living with Alzheimer's. He's a wonderful guy, and I might orient you to his work. You can find his blog through Joseph's House in Washington, D.C. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. So, um, Joshua, let's go to Diana Lobo. Diana, you have a question or comment? I do have a a question.
4: I work with senior and disabled people who are uh, low-income, trying to connect them with services so they can age in place. Um, I'm hoping that you folks might have some insight into how I can provide some support to them to take a look at their conscious process. Um I'm not uh, an experienced practitioner. I have practices, but uh, nothing like the kinds of things I'm hearing you folks speak of. Um, I always try to encourage folks to um, advocate on their own behalf and look at all of the options. Um, but specifically the the aging pieces, uh, I'm thinking of one resident in particular who um, has recently had a pacemaker at it, but she is... Um, really struggling with coming to any kind of acceptance or toleration or ability to have compassion for herself in her new position? Um, mm. Any suggestions on how to support folks in that spot? This is independent, yeah. so it's a little bit different from like hospice or like that. Thank yeah, you.
3: You know, great, uh, the great question. Go ahead,
1: uh, Anna.
2: The... the uh, uh, there are many people now teaching mindfulness-based stress reduction. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn's training is now being taught in many different facilities. That comes to my mind as uh, perhaps the most accessible for your situation in terms of a, of an actual training that could be taught to people because it helps so much deal to, for them to deal with just learning how to de-stress, learning how to calm down, learning how to uh, develop this new relationship with their experiences. that That is what comes to my mind as a possibility.
1: Beautiful. James, anything you want to add? Yeah, no, I, I'm enjoying
0: your responses just fine.
1: Great. Well, uh, the only thing I would add to that, Diana, is that, you know, um, Oftentimes, people do very well with a phrase that they repeat. And there's a beautiful quality in repeating a phrase. One is that you're evoking the particular quality of that phrase, but also you're developing the mind to orient in a more concentrated way. And it's a way of also helping people to really stabilize. And that might be something that you could consider. You know, and the phrase might be, in in the Buddhist tradition, we have various phrases that we might use, but it's okay for you to create one or develop one with the person that you're working with. You know, may I be safe. May I be happy and peaceful. Mm-hmm. May I be filled with love. May I live with ease. I mean, those might be examples that you could try. And let the person really use those as a stabilizing uh, practice in, uh, in their life. Yep. Yeah? Okay. Good. So, um, Joshua, if we could go to Donna Anforth, Anforth, excuse me, Donna Anforth. Yes,
3: hello. Can you hear me?
1: Yes, we hear you fine. Thanks, Donna.
3: Fantastic. Gosh, I didn't think I'd get a chance to ask a question. Um, I just wanted to comment on something. Um, A couple of years ago, um, I'm 44 years old, and a couple of years ago, I was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. Um, I have the BRCA1 genetic disorder. Um, and the one thing that was um, really incredible for me was after I got over the initial fear of death and mortality of feeling through that, was to realize that keeping um, keeping death in the awareness and embracing it like that, constantly feeling it in the awareness that this place is a place of change that everything passes here changed my entire reality and um, and a feeling of non separation and I realised through the process was the low grade great anxiety of uh, living life and just kind of being ordinary and and not and and but always having this underlying fear of death even though I wasn't ill and so the illness made me realize well yes I've got a very good chance of dying here but what was the most amazing part of it was that that was the greatest gift Um, because I could feel everything and the compassion for others and seeing that everything arises and passes in this place gave me it, it just took away all the shell and the armor of I'm relating to life extremely directly, and without armor. And I have noticed a lot of spiritual deepening and awareness of everything arising as div- as divine, even in the midst of that. So it, it, it came to my attention that actually, you know, in this society, we're told, you know, um, death. Is, don't let's not talk about death. It's a, yeah. a scare. But for thing. you, it's and been then, a really
1: yeah, for you, it's, it sounds yeah. like it's been an incredible awakening.
3: Yeah. It, yes, yes, it has, and I have a cancer group at my house, and um, and that's always something is 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 feeling through the fear and embracing fear and feeling through it t- to to the other place kind of thing that was yeah. very useful yeah. to people. Hmm.
2: Well, I Beautiful, would say you have it. met the messenger. You have received the messenger's teaching. Bravo.
0: <laughs> Let me just uh I can uh, jump in for a moment and say uh that that's precisely uh what the Buddha had in mind when he said uh think about this every day. Uh you know, you said that uh you saw that there was a very good uh possibility of uh of of dying and actually he said, yeah for everyone there's a very good possibility of dying it's it's certain (laughs) and we we have no idea when and mostly we uh we think we think oh yeah that 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 happens to other people uh well i i i don't need to think about that but there is something about the immediacy of of confronting it that wakes us up shakes us out of our complacency and gives us a chance to look directly at our fears and if we can relax and embrace the truth of things, then we can start to open up and, and hold our fears with uh with a wise heart and uh, an equanimous mind that can uh lead us to both fearlessness and an aliveness that's uh that's mm-hmm. not usually there. Mm-hmm. Beautiful,
1: Beautiful. Thank you, Donna. Thank you so much, and for your for not only your own work but also for sharing it with us. I really appreciate it. Mm-hmm. It's inspiring for me, I'm, I'm imagining for a lot of other people too. Okay, let's try another call. Joshua, can we please go to um, uh, Alec uh, Alexis Graff, please?
2: Yes.
0: Hi. Um, hi, I'm a I'm i I'm a hospice nurse. Um, I've been doing it for like four years now. Um,
1: I definitely have
0: noticed my relationship change
1: to the work I do since I started meditation practice and the Dharma practice.
3: Um,
1: but one thing I struggle with pretty constantly is when when it gets to be when I get to have a especially spe- difficult patient or difficult family. Um, I f- I feel like I get very empathetic. I mean uh, um, apathetic. Um, I I feel like I I. I, I start to lack a lot of the sympathy that I usually have. <laughs> and I I'm, was I'm wondering if you all had any sort of suggestion as far as um, some sort of practice that, that could help with that, that could help, uh, you know, as an antidote to the apathy. Um, well, uh, without a lot of information about why this is happening, I, I can say some general things. You know, One of the things that can happen for us when we're caregivers for a long time is we can be very empathetic actually with the people that we work with, but we can get what we sometimes call empathetically over-aroused. In other words, we, so we lean into the other person's suffering in such a way that we forget our own seat, so to speak. And um, this is one of the distinctions between empathy and compassion. Um, so one of the things we need to know how to do is continue to sense our own body, heart, and mind as we are working with other people. Um, I often find that apathy comes as a result of people becoming overly engaged in a way. And I don't mean by that that you should withdraw. I mean that they don't really have a clear sense of um, where they begin and the other, uh, where they begin and end and the other begins. So one of the things I would look uh, encourage you to do is really continue to look at that. Look and see how um, you know what happens for you when you're facing suffering. Uh, do you are you feeling a need to turn turn off the experience because you're getting overwhelmed by it, or, or and that that may have to do with a way in which you're merging with the other person in a not so healthy way. So that would be my first comment on it. Anybody else want to add to that mix?
0: I, w- I would say. Uh to take it on as a a practice in consciousness and start to notice what's going on for you, what's underneath the apathy, Um, so you get uh, just a more nuanced uh, sensitivity to where there's perhaps aversion or where there's uh, depletion or some kind of contracted mind it can actually give you uh, a lot of information and and perhaps a whole new understanding of what goes on inside of you and taking it actively as a practice and maybe not having some kind of ideal that, oh, I'm going to be the perfect perfect caregiver or support for, for this situation, but what can I learn from it and take each encounter as a uh, an exploration of con- in consciousness of what goes on for me, and how can I see beyond that filter to to the Buddha in or to the 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 the, the, the true nature, the the beautiful being underneath there that might be um, uh, might be hidden uh, through that filter.
1: Hmm. Good, great, thank you for uh, for the comment and question. Uh, Joshua, if we can go to Josette Weir. Josette Weir.
3: Yes, I'm here. Can you hear me?
1: Just fine. Thank you very much. Do you have a comment or question?
3: Yeah, um, I
2: I live in a little town in the, in the north of Canada, and uh, I I don't have a sangha, and uh, I wondered if you can comment. How is it possible to take the course without the sangha?
1: Oh. Um, yeah, maybe we, it would be good for us to answer some questions about the Course. So um, we, we we appreciate it when people are coming from an existing Sangha. We think that that's an excellent support for you in your home community. But sometimes, as you're suggesting, people live at a distance from others and may not have a person-to-person Sangha. Um, we think that the Course itself will be the formation of a Sangha, that the people participating in the Course will be a formation of a Sangha. So the fact that you don't have a existing sangha in your neighborhood, so to speak, don't let that um, he- uh, cause you to hesitate about uh, applying for the course. Please go
2: ahead and apply. Yeah. I thought she was saying that she wondered if there was an online component. No, no, I wasn't. Um, no, that was what Frank answered. I wondered oh, if she no. was prohibitive yeah. or an impediment. Oh, okay.
0: No, and, no, and no please, please thing, go ahead. Uh, go ahead, i I want to just also respond and say that uh, besides the retreats that you uh, that you' come out to uh, at spirit rock and and the community that you'd form here uh, yeah. or meeting the other people in the program, uh, one of the things that we hope is that uh, people will go back to their communities and create a kind of um, Caring circles, caring circles for how we can bring the training, not just for our own personal exploration, but bring it out to our communities. And there, uh, there might be others, whether or not they are meditators or do insight meditation, uh, there's probably enough suffering to, uh, to go around to be addressed. And so you can actively bring the training back to your community. Thank you. This is a
2: a key component of the program. This idea of seeding these teachings so that they will uh, germinate in many different sanghas all over the place, so that that there will be a greater sense of community around these issues is one of the things that people very much need with aging, with illness, with dying, is community with companionship, with, with circles of caring, so that there's a, a communal aspect to um, this understanding.
3: Yeah,
1: beautiful, Anna. Yeah, that's, this is one of the things we're really hoping to really encourage, that imagine if in Sangha's and uh, communities all across the states, um, in Canada, for that matter, Josette, imagine if there were uh, groups that had formed that could be a response that could be available to respond when someone was dealing with issues of aging or illness or or actively dying. That that community of mindful, compassionate companions could be there to help support them in some way. Well, that's what we're hoping to encourage. You know, James and Anna, while we're on this uh, subject, uh, you know, we got a number of emailed questions that came to us too about the program itself, um, and maybe we can respond to a couple of those. Um, I'll share them with you. You know, one person asked, you know, um, they are uh, going into chaplaincy, and they wondered whether or not um, uh, the program would be a support for them as they went into chaplaincy as a profession. Either of you want to comment on that?
2: I think it would be a great support for your own practice because uh, uh, we want to equally emphasize both one's personal um, dharma wisdom around the the experiences of aging illness and death as well as your capacity to serve others who are going through that experience so i, I think it would be a, a tremendous addition to your chaplaincy training
0: right one of the uh one of the comments of a that the buddha said of what a good ger- a good nurse is, is in the, the translations, or a good caregiver is that besides ministering to the um, uh, to the needs of the the person who's sick, that one can provide with really good uh, dharma and uh, and turn them towards a deepening awareness of um, of the the quest these questions in life, and as a, a, a chaplain. You would have that much more to give as you explore these uh, these topics for yourself uh, and look at the classical teachings as well as other contemporary wisdom
1: great, so another person wrote in and asked um, you know um, would she be appropriate for the program if she's not as professionally trained as a caregiver but is taking care of family members, for example, or neighbors um, James or Anna, you want to talk about that?"
2: Yes, yeah, we, I, don't, I, have I, a, we don't have me. a. We don't have a. We don't have a. You don't need to be a caregiver already. We we want to uh, help people, ordinary people, um, who have this interest and this capacity to uh, to share their wisdom. There's nothing about having to be a professional caregiver. We would welcome such a person
0: i I would see uh, I see the the program as we're all conceiving it uh, serving a few different um, potential candidates. There are those who are um, uh, dedicated uh, practitioners and and want to deepen their understanding of uh, philosophy and uh, looking at these questions of uh, aging, illness, and death for their own personal exploration, and then wanting to apply it in some way in their in compassionate service. And there are others who have done a lot of service, or this is their 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 field of real interest, who want to deepen their understanding of, um, of philosophy and, and Buddhist teachings that can help support that too.
1: So uh, it, it's uh, it will be hopefully a benefit to all. Yeah. All right. Well, we're, we're, we're going to have to wind this up because our call is just—we have just a few minutes left before we finish our call. So, I'm going to just say a few things briefly about the program, so you have the information. First of all, the application deadline for the Heavenly Messengers program is May 1st. So, it's important that you um, fill out the complete the application before then and get it into us. All the information, the dates, and the costs and the application can be found, found at www.spiritrock.org, Spiritrock.org. You can simply type in Spirit Rock Heavenly Messages in Google and it'll bring you right to the site. Uh, the curriculum is going to include, as James mentioned earlier, five seven day five seven day retreats. There'll be teacher mentoring from James, Anna, myself, Charta, Bob and, and Angie. There'll be homework assignments. There'll be small group calls in between the retreats to maintain um, continuity, and there'll be telephone, uh, rather teleconferences like this one that help people to deepen their experience. Um, And also, we're asking everyone to make a minimum commitment of five hours of service each month to people facing illness, aging, or death. Um, We do ask that people applying for the program have completed at least 30 days of residential retreat practice, or the equivalent of you can stay in touch with us, again, through the Spirit Rock uh, website, through the Spirit Rock Facebook pages, or the Meta Institute Facebook pages. You can also check out the Metta Institute at www.mettainstitute.org. Um, I really want to thank everybody involved in this call for your um, interest, first of all, but also your sincerity. You know, the, the whole world is likes to move away from these issues, turn away from these issues, but for one reason or another, you chose to turn toward them, and we really want to applaud you for doing that, and and thank you for doing that. Um, Please do um, explore more about the program. Um, We'd love to have you um, uh, be included. We're going to accept about 100 people into the program, um, and it will be a two-year project. So with and, that, uh, I'd actually like uh, James. Anything you want to uh, add to that before we close?
0: No, just uh, want to uh, make sure that Joshua uh, has uh, has oh. a comment, and I uh, want to thank you, Joshua, for your uh, support in the call. Anything uh, that you want to say as far as uh, maestros?
1: Sure, James and Frank and
0: I am just honored and, and thrilled to be supporting this important project. And folks. Uh, if you would like to learn more about Maestro Conference as a teleconferencing solution for you and what you're bringing into the world, perhaps uh, you could use this service to create global communities where caring circles can happen or uh, small group sound goes over the
1: phone. Uh, you could press three on your telephone keypad and we'll send you some information about how you can use uh, teleconferencing services like Maestro Conference to reach many people at once. Okay, thank you, Joshua. Anna, you, you started us out so beautifully, getting us settled in. I wonder if you could help us to um, end this call in a to
2: bow right out. Way. Yes, I'd yeah. like to share with everyone a very ch- short chant that is chanted every day in the monasteries in Asia as a reminder of just what we've been talking about. This is an, an, called the Anicca chant. Anicca is the Pali word for impermanence. I won't sing it in Pali. I will sing it in English. All things are impermanent. They arise and they pass away. To be in with this truth brings great happiness. So thank you all very much. It's been a pleasure to be with you. Thank you, James. Thank you, Frank. Thank
0: you very much, Anna. It's great. And Frank, it's been really great. And hope that we see people
1: uh, at Spirit Rock.
2: Yeah.
1: Thanks all.